Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. We are teaching our way through the book of 1 Timothy. For those who are new, this is a book written by the Apostle Paul to a young man named Timothy who was pastoring a megachurch in the city of Ephesus. Young man, he's only about 30 years old, and Paul is guiding him and guiding the church on the basics of how the church should live. We are in the last third of 1 Timothy where Paul has been talking about relationships in the church and how the church is very different because the church is not just an organization, the church is a family. And as a family, we have genuine care and genuine interest in one another, and we honor others in our church. We look out for those in need. In fact, for the last two uh, times we've studied this book, we looked at the particular issue of those who are weak, those who are vulnerable, those who are widows, those who are single moms, and how as the church we care for them in their time of need. Now, we're going to go to the other end of the spectrum this morning, and Paul is going to talk about how as the, in the church we honor our leaders and we respect those who are leaders among us. We live in a time and in a culture where leaders are often not given respect. Leaders are often mocked and derided. And Paul says that when people walk in the doors of the church family, they should immediately feel a different atmosphere. That leaders are respected and leaders are honored and there's a good deal of care and honor that is shown to those who are leaders in the congregation. Now as we look at this idea of how the congregation treats leaders, you'll find it breaks apart under three different headings. They are number one, that a church should honor its pastors and leaders. Number two, that a pastor should, that a church should project, protect its pastors and leaders from accusation and that how a church should select its pastors and leaders. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Number one, show honor to pastors and leaders. And Paul just jumps right in here. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, you may not have realized this, but let me just show you something here. This is the first time Paul has actually talked about the church leaders being elders here in uh, chapter 5. It was actually back in chapter 3 when he gave the qualifications for church leaders, but he called church leaders overseers. Now, as you're reading through this, you start to think, well, wait a minute. Are the older overseers one group and the elders a different group? And if the overseers are one group and the elders a different group, I mean, how do these fit together? And what is the relationship between the two of them? Well, let me uh, solve that riddle for you. First thing you need on your first point is this. Elders and overseers are just one and the same. They are. They're synonymous terms. Paul often uses them relatively interchangeably. Let me show you what I mean. We go to the book of Acts. 
where it's talking about Paul. And what does Paul do? In Acts 20, verse 17, he says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And you get into who he's talking to. He starts talking to the elders of the church in Acts chapter 20. And what does Paul say? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers. So to care for the church of God, which is obtained by his blood. So the elders are the overseers. He does this again, by the way, when you go to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then just two verses later, as he's continuing to talk to elders, what does he say? For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So elders and overseers are terms that he uses interchangeably. They're actually one and the same. Now, as he gets into this text, what does he say we should give to the elders or overseers? And that is, give respect and honor to my church leaders. That's what he wants. Now, we live, as I said, in a culture that doesn't typically respect those who are in positions of leadership. Some of you remember when candidate Trump, now President Trump, was candidate, and he went on the Jimmy Fallon show. Do you guys remember that? And what is the one thing Jimmy Fallon wanted to do at the end of the interview? Messed up his hair, right? Put his hand, let just mess your hair up, and he messed now President Trump's hair up. <clears throat> well, interestingly, even though the media is quite liberal, uh, many people were pretty angry at Jimmy Fallon for that. And Jimmy Fallon actually went on public record as saying he regretted doing that because what he did was something that was disrespectful. It was dishonorable to someone who was a candidate to become the President of the United States, one of the most powerful men, if not the most powerful man on the planet. And what does Paul say? That as the church, we are to be very different. That we respect our leaders. We honor our leaders. We don't mess with their hair. Okay, that was a joke. You're supposed to laugh at that one. And he says we're supposed to be especially showing honor to those who are good leaders and to those who are preachers and teachers. Now, why does he say we should show honor to our leaders? Well, first of all, it's theologically right because we, the Bible always says that you should honor your leaders. That's what it says. But also, it's practically right. And I was talking with a friend who had been in the military, and he will tell you, you know, you have to honor your leaders above you. If you don't honor your leaders, what happens to everything? It falls apart, doesn't it? And this is what the Scripture says. And by the way, I was going to put this verse in your outlines. I didn't, but you can write it down if you want. Is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That to make life difficult for leaders is not 
actually to the people's advantage, and it's not actually to the leader's joy. So Paul says here um, that we want to honor our leaders. It's actually for our good, and it's for their joy. Now, you may ask, practically, I mean, what does it look like to honor your church leaders? I'll give you some examples. Like when a, a leader is talking or a leader is teaching, listen. Like, try and actually learn. Because when people are preaching and teaching, it's because they love you and they care about you and they want to present God's Word to you. Try and absorb. Another way to honor leaders in your church is to uh, volunteer for service and then be faithful to commit to it. There's so many ways that we can use service in the church. Like right now, there were desperate need for the nursery. There's still desperate need for help at the coffee bar. Volunteer and then actually commit and follow through on those commitments. And I'll give you another example. Um, this morning, for instance, we talked about this challenge for the summer, that don't just attend church, be the church. Now, I know so many of you are so so excellent this way. You will take that card home. You will put it on your kitchen table, and you will take conscious action steps. How can I do that? But I also know that others in this room have already mentally thrown that card in the garbage. And you're like, you know, you're not going to change me. I'm going to do what I want on a Sunday. I'm not going to waste my time going out of my way to talk to people that I don't know. That attitude is dishonoring. It's dishonoring to leaders who care about you. So I encourage you to honor leaders who care about you and honor their word. Now, number two, he says this, give double honor to those who lead well, especially to those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, I thought this is very interesting. He says, give double honor to those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, the first question is, well, what does it mean to give double honor? Some people think it means that a pastoral paycheck should be twice as big as everybody else's. <laughs> Hate to tell you, that's probably not what it means. But it does mean this, that you should go out of your way to give extra honor and extra respect to those who are particularly gifted and good leaders and for those who are working very hard at the preaching and teaching process. He says this, those who labor at preaching and teaching. And I was studying this. I thought, this is so well spoken. The word for labor here means to work to the point of fatigue and exhaustion. He's saying that when people who preach work really hard if they're going to do a good job. And there needs to be honor and respect shown to that. Now, when I get up and teach on a 40 or 45-minute sermon, it goes sort of quickly and doesn't look like there's much behind it, but I thought I'd let you in and let you know what a typical week preparation process is for myself when it comes to preaching. Just to give you an idea of the kind of work that goes into preaching and teaching. Usually by Tuesday evening or an all-day Wednesday, I am doing reading and research. I read everything I can get my hands on with regard to a passage, nonstop, and I'm constantly highlighting everything. It, no joke, it'll take about 8 to 12 hours of reading and highlighting research between uh, 
Tuesday night and Wednesday night. I will then spend probably another four hours going through all the pages I have read and I will copy over and type over all the pertinent information that was highlighted that I think is appropriate into what's called a mind map program. It's a two-dimensional mind map so I can move things all around. Put all that information in little bubbles and ideas and then what I do is I move them around and I edit them and I sort of craft my sermon that way. After that, then I spend another four hours typing a complete manuscript of what I'm going to say to you on Sunday morning. Now, I don't, some people don't do that. I do that so I can craft and hone what words I will say. Not only will I write the manuscript, but then I'll write the sermon outline, and then I'll also write the Digging Deeper sermon study sheet that you have in your bulletins so that if you're having a small group that you can actually focus on the sermon and use it. Then from there, I'll wait till Saturday afternoon. I come in at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, and I still stay till 8 or 9 o'clock at night straight through, and I try to read through and completely memorize my manuscript and commit it to my heart. Then what I do is I write some cheat notes on my paper here. Same thing you have, but I write some cheat notes in case I get stuck, because that happens sometimes. And then what I do is I come in on Sunday morning, I read my cheat notes, and I get up and preach. So if you want to add that up, every sermon will take between 20 to 30 hours to prepare. Now, can I shortchange the process? Can I make this quicker? Well, of course, and I have in the past, but I'll tell you what. I know that the quality of the message is not as good if I shortchange things. Just like any work, if you shortchange the process, a lot of times your quality will drop. And because preaching and teaching the very Word of God is such a sacred task that I'm accountable to God and accountable to you for, I do not want to shortchange that process at all. So, he says, make sure you understand the labor that is involved in preaching and teaching. And you extend honor to those leaders who do that. And he says here also, honor pastors and church leaders in their salary. Now, what does it mean to put double honor into a pastoral paycheck? I want you to notice how Paul's been approaching this. He has not been talking about money the whole way through. He's been talking about the root issue, which is the word honor. And he says, if you have proper honor for your church leaders, it will come out in the way you pay your church leaders. And he has a quote from the Old Testament and a quote from the New Testament to bolster this. The quote from the Old Testament comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. It says, in the Old Testament, it says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. The, and this is what's called a Jewish argumentation line called the Cal-Wall-Homer argumentation. It means from the light to the heavy. If something's true in a lesser sense, that means it would be true in a greater sense. If God is concerned that while an oxen is laboring hard to tread out the grain to provide food for you, that they would be able to eat some of that food, how much more is God concerned for those who are laboring hard in the work of preaching and teaching to provide spiritual food for His people? Shouldn't they be able to get some nutrition and some, some benefit from it as well? Then he quotes from the New Testament, which is actually Luke chapter 10, verse 17, where Jesus says 
that a laborer deserves his wages. That whatever you are doing for your work, you deserve to be paid for your work. That could be delivering propane. That could be working at Baumgars. That could be working in a motel. You should be paid for that. And that could be working at a church. You should be paid for that. Now, Paul does not say exactly what the size of any pastor or church leader's salary should be, but he says this, you should be paid for it, and leaders should be honored, and those who work hard at preaching and teaching should feel double honored. Now, let me just talk about the $1 million question that is in your mind. You're saying, okay, pastor, what about you? Are you trying to hint to us that you don't feel honored and that you don't feel adequately paid? Actually, quite the opposite. Let me just tell you that I feel so blessed and so honored by you guys. You guys have always treated me and my family with a great deal of honor, a great deal of respect. We are incredibly grateful. My family, we love this church so dearly. Um, the board that determines our salary has always been very generous towards us, treated us so kindly, has kept up with the cost of increased health care so our family doesn't feel an increased pinch. It's been a wonderful, wonderful church. And I just want to tell you how honored and how thankful I am to serve here at Crosswinds, really. And I want to thank you because as a pastor and I get together with other churches and other pastors, and I hear some stories about pastors who are really struggling to make it through. And I hear stories about pastors who do not feel honored. And I can say, you know, I'll pray for you. But I want to tell you that the church I serve does a wonderful job of honoring their pastors and taking care of them as well. So thank you guys. Now, let me move on from this issue of honoring pastors and leaders and talking about the next issue he raises, which is this. How do we properly handle accusations against pastors and leaders? Because by the way, they happen all the time. He says this in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The first thing he essentially that goes on with this, if someone has a random, just know where it came from complaint, you sort of have to end up just ignoring it. You do. You know, as a, as a pastor, I hear random complaints about something. Everything from the coffee being too strong, the coffee being too weak. There's just random complaints that happen all the time every week. And I try to listen to them. I try to react to them. But after a while, like, you just can't do anything with them. You have to sort of have to ignore them. And when you hear random complaints, and sometimes you'll hear slander and you'll hear gossip about your pastors or your leaders... To one sense, you just have to ignore it, but if it's something that you think is gaining some traction and it's not merited, one way that you can honor your pastors and leaders is just to talk to the person and say, hey, that's just not true. You shouldn't be repeating that. Or if it is true, we're going to have to solve it and talk to somebody about it. And if they say, oh, we, we don't want to do that, and it's like, well, don't repeat it. It's dishonoring to our church leadership. And we want to be a place that is known for honoring those that God has given as leaders over us. Look what it says in Scripture. Romans 16, 17 through 18. 
I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons, they don't serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Or in Titus, as for a person who is stirring up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Well, what about a situation where it's not just one random complaint or claim against a church leader, but it seems like there's two or three people who are saying the same things? And maybe there's some traction to this concern. How do we handle it then? Well, it's this. If two or three people are concerned about the same thing, the elders should investigate. What they should do is those people should tell the elders, then the elders have a job to investigate to see if what is being said about another pastor or church leader is actually true. And just so you know, sometimes it's not true. Sometimes you have a really active gossip in the background who's talking to a lot of people. And you, you get behind it and you find out it's really not true. But other times you find out it is true. And let me give you an example about how uh, the church that I worked in a number of years ago handled this kind of situation and handled it very well. Uh, I was a youth pastor. When I first started in ministry, I was a youth pastor for a decade. And uh, it was, I was new to being a pastor and the church where I served was completely new to having a youth pastor. So I had some great kids, but these kids didn't really know much about what it meant to honor and respect their pastor and follow words. Found myself right away put on mission trips. And then you have lots of opportunities for things to go wrong when you're on a mission trip, especially with kids that you don't know. And I would say we need to meet, need to meet someplace at 2.30. And guess what would happen when 2.30 would show up? They wouldn't be there. Maybe a half hour later, they would come sauntering in. Meantime, I'm pulling my hair out, thinking I've just lost, all, you know, lost a bunch of kids and the parents are going to kill me. You know how this kind of stuff goes when you're learning how things work? Well, in one of these situations, it was actually, I think it was a raining storm. Kids were late. It was a big mess. I was just sort of coming unglued at the seams as a new young pastor. And apparently, in the frustration of the moment, I said a naughty word. Now, it wasn't officially profanity, just so you know, but it wasn't very pastoral either. And I had no idea that I said the naughty word. In fact, uh, what happened was those kids went home and they talked to their parents. You wouldn't believe what Pastor Kurt said. Well, and those parents, they did the right thing. One by one, they came to the elders and said to the elders, you know, Pastor Kurt said when he was on a youth trip with our kids, you know, devoid of context and what was going on, but still I said that. Well, the elders said, we've got two or three people who are reporting the same things, and the elders very lovingly sat me down, and they said, hey, when you were on that youth trip, we heard that you said, and I said, really? I can't picture myself saying that. I just don't remember saying that, completely blank, no idea. And they said, well, no, we really think you did because we have two or three kids saying the exact same thing to their parents. And so I said, well, okay, I, I, 
need to be rebuked for that. I need to be straightened out for that. Thank you. Thank you for helping me learn, but I still can't picture myself saying that. And I went home, scratched my head, like, okay, I don't know what happened. About a month later, I was at home working on something, and I don't even remember what it was, but something fell apart, something totally messed up. I got frustrated and angry, and guess what came out of my mouth? <laughs> that very same word. And as soon as I said it, I went, And at that point, I was so incredibly grateful. Grateful for elders who sat me down and gently rebuked me and told me to watch my language. And then I realized that when I got under stress situations, that I was not setting a guard on my mouth. And I could repent, and I could learn, and I could grow, and I could mature. In fact, this became my little theme verse for a while. Uh, Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord, over my mouth, and keep watch over the door of my lips. And this is the way it should work in the church. When there's a problem with a leader or an elder or somebody who's in charge, a few people talk to the elders, the elders talk to that leader, and that leader hopefully grows and he learns and he can get more of his life in order. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? Sometimes elders will bring a concern to a church leader. They'll try to rebuke that leader, but that leader will not listen or will not demonstrate that they have an ability to change and to repent. What do you do after a church leader has been rebuked a few times by the elders and it doesn't change? What do you do? Here's what he says. Leaders who persist in sin must be admonished publicly and fairly. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So, a leader is admonished by the elders. They do not repent. They do not change. At that point, it should be brought before the congregation and they should be publicly admonished. But that is usually not what happens in the church, is it? Usually what happens is discipline is enacted and it's all done silently and behind the scenes. And all of a sudden, that leader just mysteriously disappears. And then what starts to happen? The rumor mills start churning. They say, well, I, you know, I think I know what happened. And all of a sudden, you have all kinds of things going on. Then some people start to side with the leader who left. And other people start to side with the leaders who stayed. And all of a sudden, the unity of the church is torn apart. And Paul says that's not the way we do it. If you have a leader who is refusing to repent... We make the issue that the elders have been dealing with them about a public issue. So that way the unity of the church is protected. Though the leader may have to pay a high price because their sin is made known. And in so doing, here's the other benefit. That others who may struggle with sin in that area will learn really quickly to take it seriously because they don't want that shame to be part of their life. 
But you see, the unity of the church is protected. Very important. And Paul also says to Timothy, and when you are making these decisions, and when you're making these judgments, whatever you do, make sure you do them extremely fairly. Don't show favoritism to somebody. And also do it without prejudging. Now, this is something I want to spend a few minutes on. Prejudging. It happens all the time in the church and all the time in our lives. And it is not the good thing to do. Prejudging is you hear information and you immediately jump to conclusions thinking you know what's going on, when the reality is you don't. A church is a very complex uh, situation with a lot of different people, a lot of different things going on, and there's oftentimes not all the information is available to everybody all the time. So you see decisions that are made and you wonder why they're made and you start to question them. I'll give you a fun example. And all the kids in youth group are going to love this one. I'll go back to my youth pastor days. I was a youth pastor, and we had a, a new building that was built, pretty cool. And we had this really neat opportunity at one point to buy old arcade games. You know, the big stand-up ones where you put the quarters in? Asteroids, Centipede, Basketball. We got them for a song and a dance. And we were able to rig them up so you didn't need to press quarters in them. Put them in the youth room. The kids loved them. We were having a good time. But eventually, the kids got bored of them after a few years, and this thing came out called Nintendo 64. And they saw that you could do four-player Mario Kart with four controllers. And at the time, we had one of those new big projection systems in the room. And the kids like, this would be so cool. We could play four-player Mario on the wall bigger than life. I said, that's great, but it's not in the budget. And so the talks became, what if we got rid of the arcade games, took the money from the arcade games, and used it to buy the Nintendo 64? Sounds like a good idea. Well, over the summer, the information came out to another youth pastor that we were willing to sell our arcade games. He bought the arcade games, but his youth room was getting rebuilt during the summer, and he said, can you leave it in your youth room until fall? Sure. Meantime, Bought the Nintendo 64, put all the controllers, all the game consoles out there for the kids. And we didn't have youth group over the summer. So we didn't have an easy way to communicate to them what had happened. And uh, all of a sudden, some people said, wait a minute, you have a Nintendo that you said there was no money for, and yet the arcade games are still there. And I remember it was August, and I had come back from vacation because I was gone, and some of the elders sat me down and said, we think you've been dishonest to the kids. What do you mean? Well, you said you wouldn't buy the Nintendo until you sold the arcade games. I said, I did. You just needed to ask me. It was all taken care of. Don't jump to the conclusions. That's prejudging. Now, don't we do that all the time in situations? We do that all the time. And Paul says, do not prejudge situations. That's not how we handle it in the church. We get all the information before we draw conclusions. Number one, we honor our pastors and leaders. Number two, we protect our pastors and leaders from accusations and gossip. And number three, we appoint church leaders slowly. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. 
nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that cannot, even those that are not, cannot remain hidden. What is this issue of laying on of hands? It actually comes out of the Old Testament background. If you were here for a while, we did a Christmas series called Christmas from the Book of Leviticus. We studied the Old Testament sacrifices and how people would lay their hands on the animals. They would confess their sins, and that animal would die in their place, figuratively. And the idea of laying hands on it was you would identify with it. Now, that whole idea comes forward into the New Testament times, that when you appoint a leader, the other leaders were to come around them and lay hands on them to identify with them and say, by doing that, he is now one of us. We identify with him and he identifies with us. And Paul says, because what you are doing when you appoint a leader is such an important task, Choose those leaders very, very slowly. Because if you choose them hastily, you may find out they're not actually qualified to be the leader you think they are. And then he says this, some people's sins are very obvious. You can see it right away. And then other people, you get to know their sinful tendencies and weaknesses only over time. Same thing with good works. Some people are quiet, and they don't necessarily stick out to you in a crowd. But over time, you learn that they are a man or a woman of incredible godliness and incredible character. And he says, make sure you take the time to really get to know your leaders before you appoint them. That is this. The truth and time always go hand in hand, don't they? The truth and time go hand in hand. Let me just show you, by the way, how we handle this as a denomination. If you graduate from Trinity Seminary, like I did, that doesn't mean that you are officially ordained for ministry in the Evangelical Free Church. We have a lengthy process of ordination. The first thing you do is you have to write a paper to be able to defend the, the ten points. And then you have to defend that in front of a council of your peers. This is probably a one-year process. And if you successfully pass that, then you are licensed to be able to do ministry. Then you go through another two years of being monitored by other pastors and by the denomination. You have to write an even lengthier paper and go through a more thorough oral examination before a council of your peers. And only then will you be ordained to ministry. It's a three- to five-year examination process because the denomination goes very slow when it comes to ordaining someone to ministry because they want to follow this verse. And then when they do ordain someone to ministry, you know what they do? They have an ordination service. And other pastors come together, and the pastor that is being ordained gets down on his knees, and the other pastors lay their hands on him. They pray over him, and they identify with him, and they say, he officially is one of us. 
you can trust Him. Now, incidentally, you probably wonder, where are your pastors in the ordination process? Just so you know, I'm ordained by the Evangelical Free Church. Uh, Pastor Jordan just passed this spring his licensing council, did a great job on it. So he's in that two or three monitoring process before he goes through his final examination. And Pastor Stephen is in the process of writing his licensing paper this summer. So he is just approaching the first hurdle. So we want to be faithful in doing that. Now, let me just review the key things we learned this morning. Number one, Paul says, honor your leaders in your church. Number two, give extra honor to church leaders that do a good job, especially to those who do the hard work of preaching and teaching. Number three, show honor to church leaders in their salary. Number four, protect your pastors and leaders from gossip and silly accusations. Number five, if multiple people have the same concern, the elders should investigate, and if appropriate, then should encourage the leader to repent. Number six, if a leader doesn't repent, rebuke them publicly, not just privately, to protect the unity of the church. Number seven, make sure you know all the facts before you judge a leader. And then, judge them fairly. And lastly, don't put people in positions of church leadership too quickly. Go slow, because the truth and time always go hand in hand. Now, we're going to take communion here at the end of the service. And as we take communion, while the elements are being passed, I want to ask you to focus on one particular thing. That is that as the church, we have been learning in this book of 1 Timothy that we are a family. As a family, we protect those who are weak and those who are vulnerable. And as a family, we honor those who are our leaders over us. Now, as we pass the elements, I'd ask that you would take time in prayer to examine your heart. Say, Jesus how am I acting as a member of the family? Teach me and tell me. Am I just somebody who's attending church? Or am I actually somebody who is part of being the church and caring for the needs of my family and warmly welcoming those who visit? Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.